0: I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. We want to start there this morning. Let's begin in verse 1. I usually uh, minister on this subject or talk about this part of it from Matthew chapter 8. But Luke gives us a little bit more detail, a little bit more information that, uh, that I think would be good for us to see. Beginning in verse 1, Luke chapter 7. Now when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, talking about Jesus, he entered into Capernaum. And a certain centurion servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. And when he had heard of Jesus, talking about the centurion, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they, the Jewish leaders and elders, besought Jesus instantly saying that he, the centurion, was worthy for whom he, Jesus, should do this. For he loves our nation and he has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with him. You remember God told Abraham, I'll bless those that bless you, curse those that curse you. The Jews are simply saying he's been a blessing to us, so healing should be his. They knew that healing was a part of the covenant that God made with Abraham, part of the blessing of Abraham. So they're identifying that they, the, the religious leaders, are identifying that the centurion is a worthy candidate for what he's asking for. Then Jesus went with them. And when he, Jesus, was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not yourself, for I am not worthy that thou should enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, But say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. A couple of things I want to uh, point out real quickly. One is um, the difference between Luke's account and Matthew's account, Matthew chapter 8 and Luke chapter 7. The difference is Matthew's account makes it seem like the centurion came himself and talked to Jesus. But Luke gives us the the information, the specific details to let us know that the people that he sent to, to Jesus to make requests was just the same as having gone himself because they're acting in his name can you see that i want you to notice something else the centurion from the information that he sent his friends with to to, sent with his friends to jesus the centurion recognizes that he's not worthy now that doesn't mean in his thinking that doesn't mean i'm not worth god doing something for He's simply saying, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. In other words, he's saying, Jesus, I'm no big deal. What are the Jews? He is a big deal. To the Jews, he is worthy because he's built in the synagogue. He's done things for them, for the people, for Israel. But the centurion's attitude is, I'm not worthy that you need to come under my roof. That's not necessary. So he says, say in a word... Matthew says it this way Speak the word only And my servant shall be healed He said Say in a word And my servant shall be healed For I am also a man Set under authority Having under me soldiers And I say unto one go And he goes And to another come And he comes And to my servant do this And he doeth it When Jesus heard these things He marveled at him And turned him about And said unto the people That followed Now remember The centurion's not there the centurion sent this word with other people from his house. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned him about and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And they that were sent returned to the house and found that the servant who had been sick was made whole. Now I want you to notice something about this. Matthew specifically says that Jesus said the same thing that Luke did in verse 9. 9. I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. The implication there to me, there are a couple of things that are implied here that I think are worth considering. One is Jesus is surprised that he finds great faith in somebody that's not a Jew. I'm thinking that that means that Jesus expected to find great faith among somebody. But a Gentile is the last one he would have expected it from. The Jews have a lot of information A lot of historical record about how Abraham who is the father of faith the father of their faith how Abraham acted and how Abraham operated you remember in Genesis chapter 15 Jesus or God appears to Abraham and says fear not Abraham I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward he told him about the stars of the sky his seed being like the stars of the sky and it says I think in verse 4 Genesis 15 about verse 4 It says, And Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now, the Bible tells us that over and over again, several times, Old Testament and New Testament, about Abraham believed God, and God counted it to him as or for righteousness. This is the first time Jesus has come in contact with somebody that's got great faith. This is the first time Jesus has come in contact with somebody that says something so profound as speak the word only. That's all I need. I'm not looking for your physical presence. Now, a lot of people are struggling to get in Jesus' physical presence. You remember in Mark chapter 5 where it talks about the woman with the issue of blood comes in the press behind and touches his garment. For she said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be healed. Jesus knows that somebody touches him in faith and stops and looks around and says, who touched me? You remember what the disciples answered? They said, Master, the multitude throngeth thee. In other words, the whole press, the reason that this crowd is here is because everybody wants to touch you. So people have certainly heard about Jesus healing by touch. But nobody gets anything. I I find it hard to believe that the woman with issue of blood was the only one in that multitude that was sick. If that was the case, that's the first multitude that Jesus got in that was only one person sick. And so you could have a lot of sick people that are reaching through and touching Jesus and trying to grab hold of it. And it would be easy to understand what they're doing, and that is they think that just the touch itself is going to bring healing to their bodies. But nobody gets anything except the woman with tissue of blood because she's the only one that touched him in faith. She was the only one that touched him with a belief that his touch or her touch of him, just his garment, would be sufficient to exercise power and authority over the sickness and disease in her body. Now, notice what the man understand. Let's look at some, in, uh, some information that this scripture gives us, this passage of scripture gives us about the centurion. Why did Jesus identify him as having great faith? What was it about the centurion's faith that was so great? We see other situations where people had little or no faith in scripture, and Jesus pointed that out. There were times in the Bible where... Like when the storm arose and, and the disciples thought they were going to uh, drown, their boat was going to be swamped and drowned in sea, the Sea of Galilee. Jesus stopped the storm. He stood up and stilled the storm, said, peace be still. And then he said to them, why are you so fearful, O ye of little faith? There are a number of times where Jesus identified no faith or little faith on the part of, of people. Sometimes the people closest to him. But here we've got a situation where Jesus identifies somebody as having great faith well what made this guy's faith great I don't know about you but I'd rather have great faith than little faith wouldn't you well there's something about the way this guy presented himself something about the way this guy explained the situation or the circumstances that caused Jesus to say he's got great faith and he's the only one I found that's got it and he's a Gentile he's a Roman centurion And the only thing that the Roman centurion gives us information about, which means it's the only thing that we can go on, it's the only thing Jesus went on to identify this man's faith as being great, is that he understood authority. He understood authority. Now, if we can make a principle out of this, or if we can identify what the principle is behind this, then we can show what works every time. We can identify and we can come to the understanding of how we can have great faith in every situation there is. What did this guy understand? Well, he says, I'm a man under authority. And I have servants and soldiers under me. And I tell one to go and he goes. And I have, tell another one to come and he comes. So all you need to do, Jesus, is speak the word only. And my servant shall be healed. Jesus' fame must have been such that this centurion we don't know how close a follower he was of Jesus we don't know how often he was around when Jesus was in Capernaum Capernaum was one of the places that he did his greatest works the greatest number greatest in magnitude and greatest in quality you remember Capernaum was the place where when Jesus went to Nazareth sometime thereafter the people wouldn't receive him in Nazareth and he could there do no mighty work. Mark 6 5 says he could there do no mighty work doesn't say he wouldn't doesn't say he didn't want to. He's already preached to them that the spirit of the Lord was upon him to heal the sick. But he could there do no mighty work because they wouldn't believe he marveled at their unbelief. And then he said, I know what you're going to say to me. You're going to say I'm talking to the people in Nazareth. I know what you're going to say. You're going to say the same works that we've heard done in Capernaum do here. Well, Nazareth has heard about Capernaum's results. Then That's where this guy is. That's where the centurion built a synagogue for the Jews, is in Capernaum. What does he understand that most people don't? What does he understand that we need to understand? If you identify what he says, what he understands about authority, If if we just make a blanket statement and say he understood authority, and if you understand authority, you can have great faith. Well, great. Sounds good. But what does understanding authority mean? He understood the power of words. He understood that authority operates through the power of words. Now, notice what this guy's doing. And I think this is the reason Jesus marvels at him. I marvel at him too. Because he's got a chance... For Jesus to come to his house, I mean, if nothing more, Jesus coming to your house would be a big deal. Now, I don't think he sends word to Jesus and he says, I'm not worthy for you to come into my roof. I don't think he's saying the maid's off duty today and the the house is a mess. I think what he's saying, I think what Jesus marvels at is there's no need for your physical presence. How many people are going to say that to God? Most of the people I know of are praying for some physical presence of the Lord. So that they'll know that they have what they're asking for. This guy understood that words bring results. This, this guy, the centurion, understood that words demand results. Now we know, well, let me let me hold those comments. I'll make some more in just a minute. Turn with me also to Romans chapter five. Romans chapter five. We know in Genesis 126 that after God created everything on the earth, he, the, he then created man or revealed his plan to create man. And he said, Let us make man in our image. God the, the Father, the Holy Spirit, Jesus are all having some kind of conference apparently because that's all for God to talk to is the Holy Spirit and and Jesus. And so God said, let us make man in our own image after our own likeness, an exact duplicate of God himself. Let us make man in our own image and after our own likeness and let them have dominion over the earth, over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. All the work of God's hands is recorded in another place. So when God says, "Let us make man in our image and let them have authority," He's literally saying He's revealing that his original plan was for man to have authority or to rule over this earth. Now if that was God's original plan, and God never changes, that's got to be his plan now. So what did God intend? Well, he certainly intend, did not intend for man to fall. He saw that he would, but that was not his plan. That was not his purpose. If God put man on the earth and told him to resist what he knew of as the devil. To not eat of the tree that he was commanded not to eat of. If Adam did not have the power, the ability to obey that command. Then God's unfair and unjust and unrighteous. When God said you can eat of every tree except this one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam had to have the power to carry that out, the power to resist. God knew that he wouldn't, but he created him in such a manner that he could have kept the law of God if he wanted to, had to. Well, since God didn't intend for man to fall, but saw that he would, God established before the world's wherever began He established a plan of redemption for mankind. So when he put man in the Garden of Eden, put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, he gave them authority and dominion over the earth. It'd be real easy for us to say that God created man to have authority. But I think we've got to go one step further. Because since God did not intend for man to fall, we have to say that God's original plan, his original intent was for righteous man. Righteous mankind to have authority and dominion in the earth that has to be true folks adam was created made from the dust of the earth the bible talks about and then god breathed into him and he became a living soul man was the spirit that god breathed into him he was and became alive because god put the spirit of life in him and he did so by breathing into his nostrils. God took of himself. After he fashioned the appearance of man. Man's body I'm talking about. He breathed into man. The spirit of life. Which came in and of himself. He didn't just speak. He didn't say. Like he had for the rest of the world. Like be. Trees be. However all that went. He didn't speak man into existence. He breathed into him the Bible says. He imparted himself into man's body, and man became a living soul. So I think we have to, if we're going to be honest about this, I think we have to conclude that God's intent, his original purpose, and his, his current purpose, because He, like I said, he never changes. God's plan now is for righteous man to rule the earth. Have you found Romans 5? Notice it says, beginning in verse 12, Wherefore, as by one man, talking about Adam, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, sin brought with it baggage. Sin brought with it evil works against mankind. Sin brought with it spiritual death. Sin brought with it every work of the devil, doubt, fear, sickness, disease, poverty, lack, Every evil thing, every evil work that there is came as a part of the package or baggage when Adam sinned. It's all a part of spiritual death. We sometimes say casually, Christians sometimes say casually, that Jesus dealt with the sin problem. That was a byproduct of what Jesus did. Jesus dealt with spiritual death. Jesus paid the price for spiritual death. Spiritual death is what separated us from God. Spiritual death is what changed the nature of mankind from righteous to unrighteous. Spiritual death is what changed the condition of mankind from being joined with God, as Adam and Eve were, to being separated from God. And that's what spiritual death means. Spiritual death means separation from God. Well, everything, every evil work, every work of the devil is a result of the original sin that opened the door to the spiritual death. From that point, from the point where Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden, from that point, every person that was born on the earth was born into spiritual death, a world controlled and dominated by spiritual death. That didn't mean that every child, every baby was spiritually dead when they were born. The Bible indicates to us that that's not the case. The Bible indicates to us that there comes a point in time where we know the difference between right and wrong. And as we choose wrong because we don't have the power to resist it, as we choose wrong or sin, then we die along with the rest of the world. Our nature is changed. The life of God that we're born into is snuffed out, just like it was with Adam. So here it says, Wherefore, as by one man, sin entered the world, and death by sin. Death is the problem, folks. Sin is not the problem. We, when, before we were born again, we didn't have a sin problem. We had a spiritual death problem. Sin was just a byproduct of the fact that we were spiritually dead. And if you try to deal with the sin issue, which is what the Old Testament sacrifices were all about, if you try to deal with the sin issue, you're still spiritually dead. And that's what the law of Moses was intended to convey. The ritual sacrifices included in the Old Testament law were to show man you can do something about sin. You can shed blood for sin once a year on the Day of Atonement and cover your sins for a year, but you're still spiritually dead. Even if Jesus' blood dealt with the, the, the sin issue for all of eternity and not spiritual death, we'd still be dead. Wherefore, as by one man, sin entered the world and death by sin. Now, the next few verses are in parentheses in the King James translation, and, and they should be. They're parenthetical. They're descriptions or explanations of certain things. And we'll get back to some of it in just a minute perhaps. But I want you to skip with me from verse 12 down to the end of the parentheses in verse 18. Let me read them together. I'll skip the verses in between. Wherefore, verse 12, as by one man sin entered the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. When Adam sinned, everybody else did too. Verse 18, Therefore, as by the offense of one, Judgment came upon all men to condemnation. I want you to see what he's saying. He's saying because Adam's sin, judgment was passed on you and me. Not righteous judgment. It was righteous that we were judged, but the judgment was unto condemnation. There was nothing we could do to escape that. There was nothing that we could do to escape the fact that Adam's sin condemned us to spiritual death. The law of moses the ritual sacrifices those didn't do anything about the issue therefore as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation even so by the righteousness of one here's the contrast the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life for as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners that's talking about adam So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Now, why were we made sinners? Because our nature was changed to spiritual death. Mankind's, I'm talking about. Mankind's nature became one of death, not of life. When God breathed into Adam's body, the lifeless form of his body, he breathed into him the life of God, and he became a living soul. So he says... For as by one man's disobedience, this is again verse 19, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one. He's talking about Jesus' obedience in carrying out the work of the cross. By the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. In other words, he's saying the law came into place to show. That we could not. We had no power. There was no power in and of ourselves, in and of our bodies. There was no power to keep the law because we were spiritually dead. It wasn't man's fault that he couldn't keep the law. Try as he might, if he was more successful, the most successful person at keeping the law was still spiritually dead. And the Bible says that if you offend in one point, you've broken the whole law. So if you tell a lie but you haven't killed anybody, you're just as guilty of the the breaking of the law as the guy that killed somebody. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Verse 21, that as sin has reigned unto death, Adam's sin brought spiritual death upon mankind. As As sin has reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life. By Jesus Christ our Lord. Now what was God's intent concerning the redemption of man. Well any redemption plan any God any of God's plan of redemption any idea that we could come up with concerning redemption. If it didn't restore man to a righteous nature. Then it could not be sufficient. For man to spend eternity in the presence of God. You remember God had to drive them, Adam and Eve, out of the garden. They couldn't stand before him anymore. They hid their faces from him when they saw that they were naked and ashamed. The result of sin made them focus on themselves, and it changed their natures to where they chose to separate themselves from God and hide from it. In the Old Testament, Moses asked to see God's face. God said, you can't see my face and live. No man can see my face and live. In other words, spiritually dead men cannot withstand the presence of god spiritually dead men can't handle the presence of god spiritually dead men if they saw god would die which means that when god appeared unto abraham when he appeared unto moses when he appeared unto others in the old testament he had to have imparted something to them he had to have provided a protection for them that their lives were not snuffed out well, I think the scripture in Genesis chapter 15, verse 4, that we referred to, I think that's got to be the answer. Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. So in the Old Testament, the law was good for one thing, and that was so that man could have righteousness counted unto him or imputed unto him, just like it was to Abraham in the same manner. Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him to righteousness. Moses had to believe God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness too. Anybody else in the Old Testament that that, uh, God appeared to in any form whatsoever had to have had righteousness imputed unto them, counted to their credit. Now, it wasn't in reality. Abraham wasn't in reality righteous because nothing has been done about the spiritual death that he was operating in and bound by too. So when it says it was counted unto him for righteousness or imputed unto him for righteousness, it means God took the faith that Abraham directed toward him, God, and counted that, counted his belief in what God said as righteousness to stand until Jesus' price could be paid. That has to be true. Otherwise, we'd have a lot of people that got close to God and died. So when the centurion, have you forgot about him? When the centurion said, speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. The great faith that Jesus is identifying is the same faith as Abraham had, who believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. It was counted unto him for righteousness. Now notice, in the centurion's case, his own um, assessment of his worthiness. And it's interesting to me that somebody that receives something from God in a spectacular way like he did, just through the the spoken word. It's interesting to me that the issue of worthiness should come up. First, the Jews, the elders in Capernaum, told Jesus he was worthy because he's done great things for us and built us a synagogue. But then he says, the centurion says, by sending out other people from his house, the centurion says, I'm not worthy. Now, isn't it interesting that worthiness is the issue from both the Jews' side and from Jairus' side when it becomes so so much of the the, uh, concern of the modern-day church? I think it's a signal to us. This whole issue of righteousness, this whole issue of worthiness versus unworthiness and what God will do because we're worthy or not worthy or whatever. The whole argument that the devil will try to bring to your mind to talk you out of or to attempt to talk you out of believing that you can have what the Bible says you can have or says what's yours. It's interesting to me that that's all rooted in righteousness or unrighteousness, whichever way you want to look at it. The devil wants to make you think you're unrighteous, and that will stop the word of God from coming to pass on your behalf. The centurion disagrees. The centurion says, I'm not worthy, but that doesn't mean the word won't work. The centurion says, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but all I need is your spoken word. In other words, the centurion realizes what most of the modern day church, even those who have been made righteous by the blood of Jesus, fails to comprehend. The centurion understood that the word works no matter where I stand with God. The word works because it's the word of God. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we should seek to be in a position where we can't stand right before God because that's what man originally lost. When man, when the sin of of Adam The consequences of his sin, which the Bible tells us is spiritual death. When spiritual death began to rule over mankind, it created a yearning on the inside of mankind. Men, women, everywhere. Man, woman, boy, girl. No matter where they're from, no matter where they live, no matter what their life circumstances are, there's a hunger. There's a a desire that's a spiritual desire. It can't be satisfied with things of the flesh. So many times people attain what they're after, fame, fortune, or whatever, and they're still miserable. Because the thing that drives man is a spiritual hunger. And that can only be satisfied by Jesus. And the reason for that is because that was the original condition. Joined and united with God, that was the original condition that man was created under. That was the original plan for righteous man to be the ruler of the earth. To exercise authority on the earth. And so that spiritual hunger. Many people don't recognize that it is spiritual. And so they chase after it with things in the, of the world. Things of the flesh or whatever. And nothing ever satisfies them. They may come to the place where they say. Well this is all there is. And so they resign themselves to. This is it. But that hunger is still there. What is that hunger? That hunger is a desire to be righteous. It's a desire to be able to stand in the presence of God without a sense of guilt or shame. And all those are definitions of righteousness. It's a desire to be joined and united openly with your creator. And nothing else can satisfy that. Nothing else. Now I want you to turn with me over to John chapter 3. What I'm trying to do, and maybe I'm going around the bush about it, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get you to see the connection between righteousness and authority. Whether you know it or not, the basis for your authority is righteousness. What the devil must recognize in each one of us is that righteousness, our New right standing before God through the new birth, through being born again by the blood of Jesus, through faith. Which is the same thing that Abraham did, only much, much greater for us. Abraham had righteousness counted for him or accounted to him. We enter in. He had to wait for Jesus to finish the work. Jesus finished the work before we knew it. Now it's available to everybody. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Folks, we need to understand that God has worked miracles through lots of prophets and people in, in uh, the Jews' history. I mean, Moses for goodness sakes, parted the Red Sea. Moses talked face-to-face with God. Moses went up on the mountain that everybody looked at, the lightnings and thunderings and earthquakes and all that stuff, and people thought, he's dead. Nobody can live through that. The prophets did miracles. The miracles of Elijah and Elisha, for example, even to the extent of the raising of the dead. Now, folks, I know as far as God's concerned, a miracle is a miracle is a miracle. But raising the dead, somehow to me, that seems to be the top one. You know? So God has done miracles through people, lots of people and lots of occasions. Nicodemus recognizes that God's got to be with him. What Nicodemus does not recognize is that Jesus is the son of God. And why would he? Previous miracle workers in Jewish history weren't the sons of God. They were prophets, and usually the prophets would step on the toes of the religious people. And for that reason, many or maybe even most of the prophets that God sent and had working in the earth were rejected by his own people. But Nicodemus recognizes God has got to be with you in some way or another. But he doesn't recognize that Jesus is the son of God, just that God's with him and helping him do the works. Notice what Jesus says. Jesus answers, now I'm assuming there's a, um, well, there's an implied question in Nicodemus' statement, wouldn't you think? No man can do these miracles at God, unless God is with him. So we know God's got to be with you. What's he asking? The question on Nicodemus' mind could very easily have been, Jesus could very easily have responded and said, yeah, well, you're right about that. And left it alone. What was, what was Nicodemus asking? Well, to me, the only thing that makes sense is, what does this mean? God's got to be with you. It's the power of God that's doing the miracles because nobody could do them on their own. So what does this mean? What does this mean? Is there anything else you can consider or or that makes sense that that, um, Nicodemus was asking? It can't even be, how are you doing these miracles? He just said God's with you. That's pretty much the answer to how. He's got to be asking, what does this mean? Notice what Jesus says. Jesus answers in verse 3 and says unto him, verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, we know that the kingdom of God is defined by Jesus in other places and scripture. as where the will of God is done in the earth, just like it is in heaven. And that was the original condition that God placed Adam and Eve in. The earth was operating according to the will of God, just like the will of God was operating in heaven. Any sickness in heaven? No, then there couldn't be any sickness in the earth. Before the fall, couldn't have been any sickness in the earth, which means sickness was not created by God which means if God didn't create it, he doesn't use it. Any lack, any poverty, in any form in the earth before the fall? No. Just like there is none in heaven. I've said this before. It came as a real revelation to me. The Lord really had to point it out to me. When we look at what the Bible says about the kingdom of God, I have never had anybody ask me what things are like in heaven. ever nobody has ever asked me is it the will of God for there to be sickness in heaven because everybody knows for sure that it's not is it the will of God for there to be lack or abundance or poverty or, or any adversity anything that can hurt anything that can harm in heaven no that's the place where God rules and reigns according to his own sovereign will and as a result there's nothing there that can hurt or harm mankind and that's the same condition that he created the earth to be in nothing that could hurt or harm mankind God didn't have to tell Adam, now the roses are pretty, but look out for the thorns. There was nothing that could hurt or harm. Nothing. Now Jesus kind of throws a a wrench in the wheel here when he says, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Is he? You decide this for yourself. Is he saying that the miracles and the things that Nicodemus has referred to him doing because God is with him Is Jesus saying that's part of the kingdom of God? Well, we know when he sent the disciples out to preach the kingdom of God, he told them to heal the sick and cast out devils. So those miracles, those miraculous works that he identified for them to do in his name were certainly part of the kingdom of God. He said, heal the sick if the people of the city will receive you. He said, heal the sick and saying to them, the kingdom of God is near." So that much had to be a part of the kingdom of God. Well, that's part of what Nicodemus is saying Jesus is doing, isn't it? The miracles, casting out devils, healing the sick. Jesus identifies to the disciples that go do these works that those are characteristics or aspects or byproducts of the kingdom of God. So when Jesus says, except you be born again, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God, what is he saying? He has to be saying, folks, he has to be saying that being born again or being made righteous is the entrance into the miraculous. He has to be saying that, doesn't he? Is there any other possibility? Some people, and I grew up here in this in Sunday school in the Baptist church I grew up in, Southern Baptist church. Lovely people, wonderful people, taught everything they knew and stood by it. They just didn't know much. And don't laugh. That fits the description of most Christians. I was taught that Jesus changed the subject. I was taught that when Nicodemus came and said, the miracles you're doing, wow, Jesus shushed him and said, no, 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 that's not important. You need to be born again. Well, if they weren't important, why is he doing them? If he knows that what he's doing is bringing people to want to know more about God, which it does, it did and it does then why is he using it if that's not what he wants? If, not the, if that's not the intended result, why is he doing miracles? I can't imagine that there was a conference in heaven at some point in time when the miracles that Jesus did brought people's attention to God and God said, well, gee, that's not what we want. No, God's the one that understands what miracles produce. Miracles produce a hunger. It produces a desire on the part of people for the one doing the miracles. And even unsaved man is smart enough to know that man in himself can't do miracles without God. Nicodemus knew that. So when Jesus said, except you be born again, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus is specifically saying this. Or let me, let me throw it out for you. Here's what I believe Jesus has to be saying. You judge it for yourself. Jesus had to be saying, righteousness is the key to the miraculous. Now, righteousness is the key to the miraculous for him, Jesus. We know that when he talks about being born again, he's talking to mankind. He's talking to the need of mankind to being born out of spiritual death into eternal life, which is righteousness. Anytime the Bible talks about eternal life, it's got to be talking about righteousness. We think eternal life is just longevity. We think of it in terms of time. But when the Bible talks about eternal life, it's talking about a quality of life that's brought about only by being made righteous through the blood of Jesus. No other option. No other possibility. So when are we going to receive eternal life? Well, we already have. When are we going to be made righteous? We already have through the blood of Jesus. You are made righteous as soon as you ask Jesus into your heart. That is eternal life. Eternal life doesn't have anything to do with longevity. I'm glad it is eternal. But eternal life has to do with nature, spiritual nature. It's the opposite of spiritual death. It's the opposite of being separated from God. Righteousness and eternal life is being joined together with God. It's coming back into the place where God originally intended for the earth, and that is for righteous man to rule and have dominion. Nicodemus can't figure it out he says how can a man be born again can he enter in the second time into his mother's womb clearly he's thinking natural things Jesus explains that which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit you are born in the in the flesh into spiritual death but you're born again in spirit unto life everlasting. When Jesus was born into the earth, we know the the story of the virgin birth. We know that God had to bypass man to get his son into the earth. Because if Jesus was born of Mary and Joseph, then he, by definition, would become spiritually dead just like every other human being. And if Jesus was spiritually dead, he could not be a, a righteous or a worthy sacrifice for sin the sin of mankind. He had to be separated from spiritual death. He had to be exempt from spiritual death in order for his blood to be righteous or the blood of a righteous man, not by imputation, not by it counted unto him, but in reality. So in reality, when Jesus was born of Mary and the Holy Ghost who overshadowed her, the closest example we could use Or understand would be that Jesus was operating in the earth like Adam did before he fell. That has to be true. He was born of God just like Adam was born of God. Adam had the life of God breathed into him. The Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary. Those have to be complete comparisons. So when Jesus is operating on the earth... Living his life, we should say, on the earth until he gets to 30 years old. He is a righteous man. He's righteous because he never sinned. He's righteous because he never had spiritual death be imparted to him. He never operated in spiritual death because he was free from, separate from, Adam's sin for mankind. So what kind of life did Jesus live until he was 30? Well, righteousness was the key for the blessing of Abraham, wasn't it? Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. That means that Jesus never suffered. During his time here on the earth, he never suffered the consequences of sin and death in any form whatsoever. Now, Jesus could have made anything out of his life he wanted to. Jesus could have become the richest person in the world. He could have become very rich in silver and cattle and gold Just like the Bible says about Abraham, if that had been the thing that he pursued, he could have become the it of anything that he chose to pursue. You remember the rich young ruler that came to Jesus? He said, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, you know the commandments. And he mentioned several of them. He left a few out. And the rich young ruler said, all these things I've observed from my youth up. Can I suggest to you that's why he's rich and he, while he's probably young? Because that is the keeping of the law of, uh, of Moses. That is the key or was the key up to that point in time of experience, the blessing of Abraham, which includes provision, material wealth and resources. The rich young ruler says, literally says to Jesus, yeah, and here's, here's how I know I'm, or here's the, the, the source of my riches. I've kept all these laws from the uh, commandments from the time of my youth. Jesus looked at him and loved him. It's interesting that he loved him while he was rich. That went contrary to what I was taught in Sunday school. Jesus looked at him and said, there's only one thing that you're missing. Sell what you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. So what is he missing? Is the problem that he has money? Well, if the problem is that he has money, how did Jesus love him while he was rich? The problem is he only has earthly treasure. The problem is he doesn't have treasure in heaven. Jesus is not trying to divest him of anything that he has, he's not trying to to make him poor so that then he can be spiritual and then he can be worthy. Jesus is trying to get him to the place where he has treasure in heaven and not just on the earth. And the only way you can do that is by giving. That's the only way you can get there. So he says, sell what you have. He's not even saying sell everything you have. He says, sell what you have and give to the poor. In other words, Jesus seems to identify that this guy, though having been made rich by the keeping of the law and receiving the blessing of Abraham, his riches, he's too close to his riches and his possessions. It's created an issue for him where his attitude and his spiritual well-being is concerned. Now, you got to say, and we certainly need to recognize, he, he has and he has identified his spiritual hunger. I'm talking about the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler came to Jesus with one thing in mind, and that is, how do I get to eternal life? Folks, that's a pretty good thing for an unsaved person to want to know. I mean... Not everybody that comes to church is saved, but coming to church at least shows interest, doesn't it? So Jesus says, the one thing you're missing is treasure in heaven. But because his possessions, his money, his wealth did have so much of him, it did have so much control over him. He walked away sad, sorrowful. Because he wasn't willing to do what it took. So Jesus is trying to get this man in a position for a change of nature. That change of nature, we know of his righteousness. We know it is righteousness. And the Bible says, turn with me, well, whether you turn or not. I'm going to look from um, Isaiah chapter 54, what the Bible says about certain things. Isaiah 54 verse 14, I know I'm about out of time, so I'll rush through this real quick. Isaiah fifty four fourteen. in righteousness shalt thou be established. I want you to know what God said about his plan, his purpose, his direction, where Jesus would take us. He said, in righteousness shalt thou be established. The word established means a foundation. And the implication or the, the, the illustration, the word picture behind this Jewish word, the uh, Hebrew word that's translated established means so firm a foundation, so deep of roots that nothing can shake you. That nothing can shake you. Now notice what what God said through the prophet Isaiah. Notice what what God said would be the foundation of us operating here in the earth. Now folks there's a lot of time. uh, It would take too much time. But there are a lot of scriptures that we could use. That talk about man's authority in a different way. For example Isaiah said. Concerning the work of my hands command you me. Ask me of things to come concerning my sons. And concerning the work of my hands command you me. Now you can look up that word command. And you'll find out it means command. God saying, you tell me what to do. God saying to his people in the old covenant, he's saying, you tell me. Remember the Sodom and Gomorrah? Jesus came down and told Abraham what was going to happen before it happened. He said, because I know him, he'll teach his children to know the things of God. He'll become a great nation. So he told him, I'm going to find out if the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is according to the cry that's come up unto me. And if so, I'm going to destroy the city. Abraham stood before God and said, will you slay the wicked with the righteous? Or the righteous with the wicked. He said, if I find 50 righteous people there, I won't, kill, I won't destroy the city. Abraham got him down to 10. Might have been able to get him down to just Lot and his family. But he stopped in his negotiations. Now, what does that say to you? If Abraham... Who has righteousness accounted to him. And that's it. Just counted to his credit. Because of believing God. Because of believing and acting on what God said. If Abraham in that unrighteous condition. Where his nature was concerned. His spiritual nature was concerned. He's still spiritually dead. But God counts to him righteousness. Because of his faith in his word. Abraham's faith in God's word. If Abraham could do that. What do you think we can do? Who have been made righteous? See folks. The Bible tells us. And teaches us. And, and identifies. A relationship. An interaction that we have with God. The ability that we have to stand. Right before God. Not according to our past sins. Not according to the things that we did. Way back when. But without any sense of guilt and shame. Because. Our righteousness is of him not us and see that's kind of what the centurion is saying when he asked Jesus to come or asked Jesus to speak the word only he said you don't have to come to my house the word will work no matter who I am or what's going on with me in my individual life the word will work because it's your word. I know some people hear that and say, well, Pastor Mike's saying we ought to be the biggest sinners we can be and then still trust God to honor his word. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that your actions, other than actions regarding your faith, are irrelevant where the power of the word is concerned. If God had to wait till you lived righteously or I lived righteously, nobody would ever have anything. The fact is you've been made righteous, I've been made righteous By the blood of Jesus. Whether it ever shows up in our lives or not. Now I want it to show up in my life. Don't you? So I'm not trying to find something to get away with. But God knows our frame. He knows that we were made of dust. He knows the weakness of our flesh. And he still made you righteous. So here it says. In righteousness you shall be established. What purpose are we to be established. In righteousness for. Why are we to be established? Why is righteousness such an important issue for us? Why does does God want us to see and know about righteousness? Why is that such a key issue? Now, folks, the modern-day church talks about being born again. The the modern-day church talks about being washed in the blood of Jesus. The modern-day church talks about a change of life through the new birth. But how much of the body of Christ is talking about righteousness? Righteousness. How much of the body of Christ is talking about the change of nature so that we can stand before God without any sense of unworthiness? That seems to me to be a foregone conclusion by 99% of the church uh, in the, throughout the world today that you can't be like that, so why talk about it? But the Bible says even though your flesh may not show it, even though your flesh may not live up to it, that's who we are. In righteousness thou shalt be established. Thou shalt be far from oppression, for thou shalt not fear. Why are we not fearing? Because of righteousness. Isaiah 32 says, uh, verse 10, I think, says something like this. It says, the work of righteousness shall be peace. And the effect, quiet assurance forever. When we understand, if we ever do come to the understanding of who we are, According to the righteousness of God. That we are indeed the righteousness of God. Then folks the devil sunk. Because so much of what's going wrong in our lives. Or so much of what's coming against us in life. Comes with the, the attachment. Of the devil's word saying. You deserve this. You don't deserve God's best. You don't deserve deliverance. You don't deserve healing. You don't deserve what the Bible says Jesus has done for us. Because of what we've done. But this says that righteousness will be the foundation for us to be free from oppression. Free from fear. Free from all the evil works of the enemy. Thou shalt be far from oppression for thou shalt not fear and from terror it shall not come near thee. Skip down with me to verse 17. Why does he want us to be established in righteousness? So that we can live up to this verse. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. Why? Because you've been made righteous. Because you know you've been made righteous. Because you're not willing to swallow the stuff that the devil tells you about being unworthy anymore. You know that the blood of Jesus has paid the price for you. You know one of the most effective things I've found in standing against the devil? Whenever he starts talking to me about me, I start laughing and say, Mr. Devil, it's not about me. I don't try to tell him he's wrong. I don't try to tell him that I didn't do the things that he's telling me that I did do and reminding me of I just simply laugh and say yeah well the problem that you have is that this is not about me and folks that will always be true no weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their righteousness is of me saith the Lord their righteousness is of me saith the Lord one last scripture I want to point you toward and that's Luke chapter 10 Their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. Now, folks, if we take that apart, if we take that verse 17 apart, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. Every tongue that rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. When we take that apart, is that not the exercise of authority? It would take the exercise of authority to stop any weapon formed against you from prospering, wouldn't it? It would include the exercise of authority here on the earth if we are to condemn the tongues that are wagging against us. And I believe that's talking about the devil, not people. And notice the the source, the foundation of all those things is righteousness. Luke chapter 10, verse 17, and the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. Jesus hadn't said, you go back and read the first part of the chapter. Jesus never said a word about casting out devils when he sent the 70 out into the cities. He told them to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, freely give. They come back and say, wow, even the devils are subject unto done to us in your name. And Jesus said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. He's not talking about when they did something, that's when Satan fell. He's saying, God cast him out of heaven and he fell to the earth like lightning. Satan has been defeated all the time. Satan was defeated when he came to Adam and Eve he had already fallen from heaven like lightning. That's why he had to borrow a body to be able to speak to Adam and Eve. He had to use the body of a serpent because man who has a flesh and bone and blood body was given authority on the earth. Satan was the ultimate illegal alien. And I believe Satan, I believe Adam's greatest sin was that he didn't build the wall. That's what God told him he had authority to do. God told him to keep and protect the garden. What he said went. God did not say, I'm putting you in charge and you're a little bit higher than the cows, so if you have a problem, call me. He told Adam, you have authority over everything I've created on the earth. You rule over it. And Adam didn't do it. When the serpent came in, the body of the serpent, which was used by the devil, when he came in and started talking to Eve, Adam was standing right there for the whole thing. He could have and should have said, you're the one that God gave me authority over. Get out of here and don't come back. But he chose to listen. Well, these guys, the 70 come back And they said, even the devils are subject unto us to thy name. And Jesus said, I beheld Satan, as lightning fall from heaven. He's still just as defeated now as he was then. Now these are, please understand, these are unrighteous men that are operating in the power of God. The only thing they've got is a promissory note for righteousness. But because Jesus hadn't yet been to the cross and raised from the dead, they can't have the real thing at this point in time. But the word and the power of God's word worked even though they didn't measure up to what you and I would consider righteous behavior. If it worked for them who were still spiritually dead, how much more should it work for us who've been made alive through righteousness, even though there might be some things wrong with our flesh and the way we're living our lives. I beheld Satan, fall as lightning from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power. This word power is literally the word authority. Behold, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Now, folks, if that's not talking about authority, I don't know what is. He's saying you decide what degree of the devil's influence will take hold of your life. You decide. I'm giving you authority over all the power of the devil. You decide how you're going to use it. You decide how you're going to use it. But then he says something Mind-boggling. He says in verse 20, Notwithstanding, in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Now, folks, the only thing that writes your name in heaven is righteousness. So Jesus is saying, Oh, yeah, you have authority over all the devil's power. And if you use it, if you exercise it, nothing shall by any means hurt you. But the thing to rejoice about is not that you have power over the devil. The thing to rejoice about is that you've been made righteous. Now, why would he say that? Does he not want us to know that there's a devil out there? Does he not want us to know that the devil's power is something we could and should use authority over? The reason he says what he does, folks, is because... Righteousness, which is the prerequisite to having your names written in heaven. Righteousness is the foundation for every, ex, every use, every exercise of the authority that you and I have been given. In righteousness, you'll be established. In righteousness, you'll be established. Not in power, you'll be established. In righteousness, you'll be established. He doesn't say, because I've given you authority to use my name, then you'll be established. He's saying that it's righteousness, the change in nature that occurred when you and I were born again. It's righteousness that puts us in a position where no matter what, whether we miss it, whether we're having a good day, bad day, whether we've lost our temper and cursed at somebody or gotten upset with somebody when we shouldn't have, none of those things are the issue. The issue is we are righteous by the blood of Jesus. And that blood that made us righteous is the key to everything. And don't ever let the devil tell you different. Jesus was amazed. He marveled at the centurion's great faith. The centurion simply understood that there's a position whereby words demand results. That position for you and me is a position of righteousness. Which means every word that you speak Demands results. You say positive words, you say power filled words, and power filled results will follow. You say words of weakness, weakness will follow. You have been made righteous. Whether somebody knows it or not, the righteousness that we've been made creates a situation where the words of our mouths demand results. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for your plan of redemption. Jesus, what a wonderful thing you came to bring us. Forgive us for our ignorance, but we're no longer ignorant. We recognize that you've made us righteous by your blood. We recognize that the new birth is all about a change in nature. We recognize that the new birth is about being translated into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the power of God, the kingdom of the will of God being done on the earth, just like it is in heaven. We realize, Father, from your word that Jesus made a way for no weapon formed against any of us to prosper. Satan, we serve notice on you. We are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. God said our righteousness was of him. So we refuse to allow your power to rule over us in any area of life. In the name of Jesus, we break your power over our finances. In the name of Jesus, we break your power over sickness and disease that comes against our bodies. In the name of Jesus... We refuse to allow any of your evil works to bring harm to us. We have been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Thank you for all that means, Lord. Show us how to use our authority. Show us how simple it is to simply believe and speak your word and see things change around us. This is the great plan that you had from the beginning, Father. That you might come in among us and dwell with us. That the Holy Ghost would be our teacher and our guide. That he would show us things to come. Until ultimately, you recreate the heavens and the earth. And bring the new Jerusalem down to the earth to live among us. We are a part of the kingdom of God. We are a part of the kingdom of God's power, even miracle-working power. Thank you, Father, that there's nothing that's too hard for you and nothing you would withhold from us. In righteousness, we are established. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah hallelujah with heads bowed and eyes closed nobody looking around i have a witness in my heart that there's somebody here that's not born again i have a witness in my heart that there's somebody that needs to make a decision today to make jesus the lord of their lives if you're here this morning you would say pastor mike that's me i've never asked jesus to make me a new creature i've never been born again We want you to have that opportunity and to experience that right now. So if that's you, maybe it's more than one. I'm just have a witness that it's at least one. If that's you and you would say, I can't point to a moment in time where I know that I know that I know I asked Jesus into my heart. Would you lift your hand, please? God wants you to be a part of his family. By lifting your hand, you're not trying to join the church. We're just simply recognizing that as a request for prayer. And we know how to pray so that you can receive what you need from the Lord. So if that's you, just lift your hand now, please. Okay. Well, I have news for you. God's not through with you yet. It would be better for you to respond today. But God's not through with you yet. So let's all stand, please. And let's lift our hands and thank God that he's made us righteous through the blood of Jesus. It's not about us. It's for us. We love you, Father. We magnify your holy name. We thank you that we are established in righteousness. And we're becoming more aware of it all the time. We're becoming more aware of who we are in you, Father. Even as Paul said, those that receive the gift of righteousness shall reign in life. Shall reign in life. Exercise authority in life. We worship you, Lord, because our names are written in heaven. We worship you that we've been made new. We worship you, Father, for your great plan of redemption. And for the power that that brings into our lives. In Jesus' precious name. Everybody that agrees with that prayer, say amen. 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 Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. It's good to know who we are. It's good to keep learning who we are too. Amen. Have a great day. Come on back and be with us tonight for Healing School if you can. And you're dismissed.